Uh, Norman Grubb was the son-in-law of the very well-known missionary C.T. Studd. One day Norman Grubb was at home in England and a phone call came through. It was from the United States from the representative of a church in Los Angeles asking Norman Grubb to visit. Norman Grubb said, do you want me to come and preach? They said, no. Uh, let me explain, the inviter said. We have three services at our church, the second of which, on a Sunday, is televised nationally. If you don't want me to come and preach, what do you want me to come and do? We want you to come and pray the prayer for which you are famous. And so Norman Grubb went to the United States. He was interviewed on the service on national television, and then he was invited to pray his famous prayer. Here's the prayer. Good morning, Lord. What are you up to today? May I be a part of it. Amen. I'm sorry, you didn't think of that. But it's not a bad prayer, is it? Because it raises the issue, what is God up to today? When you talk to some people, you think that God is doing a new thing today as though the old strategy failed and he's got to do something new. And also it expresses the desire that we participate that we align with God's purpose and what God is up to today. Now, in this first talk, you're going to have to flip in your Bibles. Flip back, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, which is where Luke, who is the author of both Luke and Acts, introduces his two-volume work. What is God up to today? In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, notice what Luke says in this introduction. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Notice there in verse 1 that Luke does not say that things just happened. These things, he says, have been fulfilled. They have been brought to completion. Just as they were handed down to us, verse 2, by those who at first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I want you to know that the source of my information for what was fulfilled were eyewitnesses and probably preachers of the word. Verse 3. My method in doing my research, Luke says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... And it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So my aim is to provide an orderly account of what has been fulfilled. I've gone to the eyewitnesses and I've carefully researched everything. And then he says in verse 4, and I'll read it in the order in which he wrote it, in the original language, so that you, of the things of which you can have been taught, may have certainty. Luke uses last words well. And his last word here is certainty. I want you to know the certainty of what God has, for, has fulfilled so that you can align yourself with God's purpose. Now, what is God's purpose? Now, come with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke's gospel, and just see what Luke says there in verse 44. Now, notice that at Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus has been raised and Jesus is now speaking to his disciples. And look at what he says there in verse 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled, there's that word again, that was written about me in the uh, law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. 
And then he tells them that he has come, therefore, to fulfil his God's purpose. And then look at verse 46. This is the purpose of God, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, verse 46. And you could say that verse 46 is a very good summary of Luke's Gospel, volume 1, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But look at verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness will be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The gospel of Jesus, in other words, is going to reach the ends of the earth. And therefore, verse 47, that the gospel is going to reach all nations beginning at Jerusalem, is a very good summary of the book of Acts. So verse 46, a good summary of the gospel of Luke. Verse 47, a good summary of the book of Acts. But... I want you to notice the first word of verse 47. The first word of verse 47 is the little connective and. In other words, it is as much the purpose of God that the gospel should reach the ends of the earth as it is the purpose of God that Jesus Christ should live, die and rise again. Now I put it to you that if you deny verse 46 today, well, that's heresy, isn't it? You can't deny the fact that Jesus lived, died and rose. But if you deny the reality of verse 47 today, well, in many circles, that's plain orthodoxy, isn't it? We don't have to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because the earth's come to us. In other words, Africa's empty. Asia's empty now. South America's empty. The reality is that it is still as much the purpose of God that the gospel should reach the ends of the earth as it is the purpose of God that his son should suffer, die and rise again. This is being fulfilled. What is God up to today? God is glorifying himself. How is he doing that? By saving a people for himself through their hearing and believing the gospel of his son which has been carried to the ends of the earth by his spirit-empowered people. That's what God's up to today. Now, flip with me now to the book of Acts, because that's where we're going to be spending our time. Look at verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And notice the bridge here from volume 1, Luke's Gospel, into Acts, volume 2. Look at what, uh, verse 1, Luke says. In my former book, Theophilus, same man he's writing for, Verse 2, until the day that Jesus was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Isn't that interesting? That Luke tells us that when Jesus instructed the apostles, he gave instructions in fellowship with the Holy Spirit who strengthened Jesus in his humanity. And then look at verse 4. We read in verse 4 that Jesus says to the apostles they are not to leave Jerusalem. But look, no one had had a theological preparation like they had. They'd seen Jesus live. They'd seen Jesus die. They'd seen Jesus rise from the dead. They were ready to go. Jesus says, no, you're not. Verse 47, he says, you wait. You wait here for the gift my father promised. And then he quotes verse 5 from John the Baptist whose water baptism foretold the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when they're full of questions of Jesus, verses 6 and 7, he says, don't you worry about dates. You will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my spirit-empowered witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, chapters 1 to 7 of Acts, then in Samaria, chapters 8 to 12 of Acts, 
and then to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. So notice here in these first eight verses, have you noticed? Jesus gives instructions through the Holy Spirit, verse 2. The apostles, verse 4, are to wait for the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist foretold the coming of the Holy Spirit, verse 5. And verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you for witness. God purposely sends his Son so that there is a gospel of repentance and forgiveness to preach. And God purposefully sends his spirit upon us, his people, empowering us for witness. And is that what happened? Well, that's what Luke is all about. That's what Acts is all about. That is precisely what happened. And Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is an excellent author. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Come with me to chapter 4. And I find myself, when I'm reading Acts, often I'll read over the text. I just don't note the details. But Luke has given me the details. Look at chapter 4. Peter and John are at the Sanhedrin. They're speaking with great boldness to the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 13. When the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. What gave Luke and jo what gave Peter and John this great strength? Well, we read over verse 8, don't we? Verse 8 tells us, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just Peter had some courage within himself. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Luke is saying? It is spirit-empowered witness. Come with me just a couple of pages over to chapter 6. And in chapter 6 we meet a deacon whose name is Stephen. And have a look there at verse 5, the way Stephen is described. They chose Stephen, chapter 6, verse 5, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen, in chapter 7, goes to the Jewish ruling council again and he stands up, have a look at verse 51. And look at what he says. You shouldn't say this to the Jewish ruling council. In verse 51 of chapter 7, Stephen applies terms to the Jewish ruling council that should only be applied to Gentiles. He says, you are stiff-necked. You've got uncircumcised hearts and ears. But they were God's own people. And just have a look there at verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Whatever happens in the book of Acts happens because the Holy Spirit is empowering the people of God. It's not that they are outstanding apostles. They were self-effacing. They were never pointing to themselves. They were always pointing away from themselves. Just go over to chapter 14 and I'll give you one example of that. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas return from the first missionary journey and they report what they had done. Look at verse 27. Do they say, hey, we've done great things among the Gentiles? Look at what they said. On arriving there, 1427, they gathered the church together and they reported all that God had done through them. It wasn't them. 
It was the Holy Spirit of God at work through them. That's the thing that's to be noticed. Just read down a few verses to chapter 15, verse 4. Again, when they come towards Jerusalem, verse 4, they reported everything that God had done through them. This is God's plan, God's purpose. God's Son is their message. God's empowering. We are part of it. But it's God's purpose. And God alone has the limelight. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. Here's Barnabas and Paul. What do they say? These are the wonders that God has done among the Gentiles through us. And when Paul goes ultimately to Jerusalem, he greets the church there and he tells them all that God had done through him among the Gentiles. Now, they never forgot, friends, that this was God's work, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of which they are a part. Uh, I don't know, you, you've probably heard of the American evangelist D.L. Moody, who came from the United States on one occasion as would, when was invited to Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. And he had a great ministry amongst the educational elite of Cambridge University. But D.L. Moody was basically an uneducated man. A prominent Christian by the name of Lord Shaftesbury went and observed what was happening at D.L. Moody's crusades. And he said, all I can say is I was impressed by the imperfection of the whole thing. It was so imperfect. And D.L. Moody responded and said, of course, we don't strive to be imperfect. God uses treasures in jars of, in, in jars of clay. He says, this is God's ministry. This cannot be localised to my giftedness particularly. This is God using people like me to bring people like you to himself. Uh, when Billy Graham died recently, I watched an interview with Cliff Burrows, who was the host of many Billy Graham meetings. And, Billy, and Cliff Burrows said, I remember when we came to London for the crusade in 1954 and all the journalists were saying, oh, well, so many people are responding to Billy Graham's message because you sing that very emotive song, Just As I Am. And so Billy Graham said, well, we won't sing it. And so he told me, Cliff Burrows, we won't sing it. And so we didn't sing it. And people came forward in increasing numbers. And finally, the journalist said, we can't stand the silence. Please start singing it again. <laughs> so you see, we'll look for every reason. Apart from the reason that is given to us in Scripture, this is God's work. God will glorify himself. He will save a people for himself who will come to faith, who will believe the gospel of his son as it's carried to the world through spirit-empowered people like us. No glory to the people who are saved and no glory to the people who carry the message out. It's not because of our work. It's not because of our cleverness. It's not because of our rhetoric. It's God's plan. It's Christ's work. And it's the Holy Spirit's power. Uh, for the Ashes series this year, we have an Englishman always come and stays with us whenever the Ashes cricket is played here in Australia. And he heads up a Bible reading charity in the United Kingdom. He said, uh, you know, David, frankly, uh, when I read the Bible, the Gospels, I sometimes become frustrated. I said, oh, why do you get frustrated, Ian? He said, because as I'm reading, I want to follow the various characters home after Jesus has dealt with them. For example, the paralytic, the leper, the demon-possessed. Look at the widow of Nain's son. 
Jesus comes along and says to the young man, young man, stand up. And the young man who has been dead sits up and begins to talk. And Jesus gives him back to his mother. Don't, wouldn't you love to go home with the widow and her son, newly resurrected? What did they have that night for dinner? What did they speak about around the dinner table? But Luke, the author, never allows the camera to shift from Jesus. It's not the people Jesus met, it's the Jesus people met, and we go with Jesus to meet the next people. And Luke is exactly the same director in the book of Acts. What was the Ethiopian treasurer like when he got back to Ethiopia? What was the man who went walking and leaping and praising God, who had been paralysed all his life? What was it like in the Philippian jailer's household? But you never go back because the camera is never on the apostles. Well, Peter comes and goes. Barnabas comes and goes. Paul comes and he fades away. Where is the camera? The camera which is on Jesus in the Gospels in the book of Acts. The camera is tracking the gospel itself. And the gospel is going from Jerusalem through Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we call this the Acts of the Apostles. Some people say, well, it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. What would Luke say? Well, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel's progress. And Luke never loses his way as an author. He's showing us the camera's always on the gospel. And the gospel is always on the move. God is fulfilling his purpose through his spirit-empowered people, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, so that people hear and believe and God is glorified as they become his people. Now, let me give you in closing three. Don't be encouraged too much by that because we've still got a way to go. But let me look at three examples of how Luke doesn't leave his way, lose his way. Look, first of all, at Acts chapter 6. Here is an example of internal division in the church. The widows from a Hebrew-speaking background, that is the widows in Jerusalem who speak Hebrew or Aramaic, uh, and the Greek-speaking widows, that is the widows in the church who are outside of Jerusalem, though they are Jewish, they speak more Greek than Hebrew, and those widows, the Greek-speaking widows, are grumbling at the discrimination at the distribution of welfare. They believe that they're being discriminated against. The Greek word is that they started to grumble. The Greek word is gongousmos. They were gongousmosing the widows. And so verse 2, look at what happens. There's a prompt response. The apostolic leadership is open. They say, we've got a problem. They say, you need to choose seven men. There's the solution. Because verse 7, verse 2, sorry, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. That is our priority. The fulfilment of the task and purpose of God is our priority. Verse 4, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So you choose these seven people. Now, if you look in verse 5, the proposal pleased everyone and they choose seven men. Now, I don't know how it works in your church, but in my own denomination... If you had two groups, you might get four to three or five to two or six to one. But would you notice that all seven men who are elected have Greek names? 
In other words, the church was so concerned to get rid of this charge of discrimination that they chose deacons from a Greek-speaking background. And therefore, there certainly would not be any discrimination. Now, look at what Luke says. Why is he telling us this? Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The gongoosmoshing, complaining did not spread. The word of God spread and it penetrated deeply into the priestly hierarchy and the number of disciples increased rapidly. That's why we are being told this. This incident is not a sidetrack. It's used by God to fulfil his purpose. Now come with me to Acts chapter 12, a remarkable chapter. Because if you look at Acts chapter 12, you could cut Acts chapter 12 out of the narrative of Acts and it'd still make perfect sense. You notice at the end of Acts chapter 11, we are in the church at Syrian Antioch. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, we're back in the church at Syrian Antioch. And so it's almost as though chapter 12 has sort of been added as a bracket. Herod's in control, and look at what happens. It was about this time, verse 1, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. In fact, the, word, the, the verse goes like this, literally, in verse 2, James with the sword. In other words, James was decapitated. Isn't that an amazing thing? Now you think, well, I'm the widow of James. Oh, yes. Luke, I've got a bone to pick with you. Uh, my husband, James, was an apostle. He was one of the inner circle apostles, Peter, James and John. And when it comes to his death, you give him three words, one verse. And yet that bloke, Stephen, who's not even an apostle, he's a deacon and a Greek-speaking deacon, you give him 75 verses to record his death. Why is it that he gets 75 and my husband gets one? Now you can sympathise, can't you, with James's widow? Why is it that James gets one verse and Stephen gets 75? Because our author is a single-minded author. His focus is on the fulfilment of God's purpose and the death of Stephen is going to be a, 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 a big catalyst, a big cause for the gospel moving out of Jerusalem, Judea, and going into Samaria. And James only gets one verse because his death has no seeming effect on the gospel, no discernible effect on the gospel's movement. My purpose, therefore, is to show you God fulfilling his purpose. And James simply goes, but Stephen's death, is a major cause for gospel expansion. Well, Peter is in prison. James is dead. Peter in prison. Look at verse 5 of chapter 12. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. It's remarkable. An angel sets Peter free because Peter still has work to do. And look at verse 12. Because when you look at verse 12, you could cut verse 12 to 17 out. It's unnecessary. The narrative makes complete sense without verses 12 to 17. So why does Luke include verses 12 to 17? Well, this is what verse 12 to 17 tells us. That Peter comes to the home of Mary, where the church is earnestly praying to God for him. He knocks on the door 
Rhoda the servant girl comes out. She's so excited when she hears Peter's voice that she runs excitedly back inside and said, our earnest praying has been answered. Peter is at the door. They say, stop it. You're being silly. You are insane. I tell you, it is Peter at the door. And no, it could only be his angel. Here is the church, earnestly, but unbelievingly praying to God. Oh, it couldn't be Peter. And then they go to the door, they open the door, and here's old Peter still standing at the door waiting to be let in. Isn't it a remarkable thing? Why does Luke include this? Because he does not want us to idealise the church. Oh, yes, the church were earnestly praying, but they were unbelievingly praying. They did not think for a moment. James had been decapitated. Could Peter be released? Yes, he was released. But the, the gospel of God's purpose was not hindered by the unbelievingness of the church's prayer. Look at verse 19. Herod is ruthless. He executes the guards who are responsible for Peter. He denies food to Tyre and Sidon and they beg for an audience. Verse 21, he appears in his royal robes and he speaks. And verse 22, the people of Tyre and Sidon say, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. I don't know when you heard the last Australian politician speak and you attempted to respond like that. Oh, this was a wonderful speech. No, it's not like that. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Verse 23, Herod did not give glory to God and he was struck down. And Luke, who was a doctor, reports that he was eaten by worms and he died. The angel, which kicked Peter awake, now strikes Herod down. And Herod, who had denied food to Tyre and Sidon, in his death becomes food for worms. The chapter which began so well for Herod, the political opportunist, ends with his wormy death. Why are we told this? Because God is fulfilling his purpose. Have a look there at verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. It was unstoppable. The grumbling dissension didn't increase. The self-serving politicians didn't increase. But God's word is carried by his empowered people to the world. Its progress is unstoppable. It was not eaten by worms it continued to increase and spread. The purpose of God must be fulfilled. Lastly, chapter 19. Chapter 19. Paul, the pioneer church planter, his last church plant is at Ephesus. After Ephesus, he lays down his work. John Wesley said, God buries his messengers, but never his message. And what's interesting here in chapter 19 is that Paul has stopped his church planting work, but Luke, the author, deliberately over these next verses tell us of Paul's co-workers, Timothy, Erastus, Gaius, Aristarchus, Sopitus, Secundus, Tychicus, Trophimus. He names them all. Oh, Paul stopped, but the work of the gospel hasn't stopped. Paul's co-workers will carry it on, but the work of pioneer evangelism for Paul is over. Well, look at verse 10 of chapter 19. 
Paul goes from the synagogue to the hall of Tyrannus and the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Verse 11 and 12, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so much so that the seven sons of Sceva want to use the name of Jesus. Look at verse 13. In the name of Jesus, they say, whom Paul preaches. And verse 15, the evil spirit that they're trying to drive out of the man says, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the demon overcame them and beat them up and they ran away naked and bleeding. Now notice that when the demon refers to the Lord Jesus, he simply calls him Jesus. And when the seven sons of Sceva refer to the Lord Jesus, they refer to simply Jesus. But just look at how when Paul, when Luke refers to the Lord Jesus, verse 13, they were trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. And verse 17, people were filled with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus. Seven sons of Sceva didn't recognise that he was the Lord. The demons didn't recognise that he was the Lord. But Luke is telling us that Jesus is the Lord. And the people take their scrolls of magic arts and they burn them. And they could have been sold for a fortune. What is Luke telling us this for? Because superstitious fakery superstitious magic arts, those people who want to get rich, the seven sons of Sceva, through religious activity, they all fail. But look at verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Grumbling ceased. Herod's wormy death. Magic scrolls reduced to ash. But the word of the Lord was healthy indeed. Its progress is unstoppable. It is carried by spirit-empowered people so that people can hear and believe and be saved. And God is glorified. The question that comes to us, therefore, is this. What Luke is writing about is what God has fulfilled 2,000 years ago. But his gospel has not lost its power. God is still the great evangelist. In fact, one of the most common words used in the book of Acts is a little Greek word, D-E-I, day. It must happen. It must be fulfilled. In fact, one scholar, Ian Blakelock, who was the late professor of classics at Auckland University, wrote this when he wrote his commentary on Acts. Listen to this. To press beyond the fringe is always sound policy, provided it is done with vigour and devotion. Isn't that a challenge for us? God's purpose is there. We are to press beyond the fringe. The Daniel Andrews government in Victoria can uh, legislate against conversion therapy. In other words, God will be stopped by a law from Daniel Andrews and in Victoria nobody will be converted anymore. This gospel is unstoppable. God will glorify himself. He will save a people for himself. And let the political opportunists stand up against him today. But God will continue to glorify himself through his spirit-empowered people taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to press beyond the fringe. The next house, the next street, the next town, the next city, the next country is always sound policy, provided it is done with vigour and devotion. This is a spreading, unstoppable word, and God will see his purposes fulfilled. One last verse. 
Look at chapter 18. What a remarkable verse this is. Verses 9 and 10. Paul is at Corinth. He's having a tough time. Chapter 18, verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Now, when God speaks directly in a vision, he's not going to waste words. Look at what he says to Paul. He says to Paul, don't be afraid. Now, I don't know about you, but I never think of Paul being afraid. But he must have been afraid. Otherwise, God wouldn't have said to him, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. But I never thought of Paul being reluctant to speak. I'd rather be silent. But Paul was probably human, just like me. Scared. Afraid to speak. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Why? Because I have many people in this place. I have many people in this city. How did God know he had people in this city? Because God knows those who are going to be his. And he knows the ones he's going to bring to salvation as the spirit-empowered church take the gospel out. You stay where you are. Why? Because I've got many people in Latrobe. Oh, they don't know me yet. But one day they will. You speak. You don't be silent. You go back to Devonport. You go to Ulverston. Yeah, because I've got many people in that place. And I'm going to fulfil my purpose there. Good morning, Lord. What are you up to today? May I be a part of it. God is glorifying himself through saving a people for himself who hear and believe the gospel of his son, which is being carried by his spirit-empowered people to the ends of the earth. Press beyond the friends with the gospel and see what God will do through you. Are you a part of it?